Thank you for listening to Knocking Doors Down, brought to you by KDD Media Company. Here at Knocking Doors Down, we share the stories of people who overcome adversity. You know that already, but what you may not know is that our partners at the Carlos Vieira Foundation aim to help people who struggle with their own adversities as well. The Carlos Vieira Foundation helps those in need through their Race for Autism, Race to Be Drug-Free, and Race to End the Stigma campaigns. You can also choose the Carlos Vieira Foundation as your charitable organization on Amazon Smile to contribute as well. To learn more and support these causes, check out all the info at carlosvierafoundation.org. Knocking Doors Down is about those who've turned their greatest adversities into their greatest advantages. Featuring celebrities and people from all walks of life who have experienced challenging times in their lives and how they were able to break through and live a purposeful life inspiring others to be their best selves. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, mental health, or other areas of trauma, you're not alone. Hear how those that have been there, broken through, and started knocking doors down. I'm your host, Jason the Chan with a background of alcoholism, family addiction, trauma, divorce, financial struggles, and depression. I'm co-host Mikey Naraki. I struggled with substance abuse issues along with anxiety, depression, and financial struggles. If you're looking for inspiration and motivation, you're in the right place. This is Knocking Doors Down. No sugar tonight in my coffee. No sugar tonight in my tea. It's Knocking Doors Down. Jason here. I'm Mikey. Are you sure about that? I'm positive. Good, because one thing I'm positive about, we speak to an inspirational gentleman, Luke Wallet. You're going to hear his story about uh, you know, being an NFL prospect. We actually, you know, showed up with the Saints. Wrong team, though. You picked the wrong team. I know, team. you're a Niners fan, yeah. but uh, hey, uh, it can happen to anyone, and uh, Luke, uh, his story is, is no different than others that fall into addiction, except how he went about it, mm-hmm. and it was really his, uh, as often happens with addicts we say it was uh we try to use it as a, a solution for our problems and then it becomes a greater problem well and that's what he was doing he was taking it as prescribed you know what i mean it's not like he was out at parties doing it you know or got caught up with the wrong group of friends or something like that it was just he was following the doctor's orders and that's what's scary yeah like that's do all due to sports injury so mm-hmm. here how his story uh leads him into total full-blown addiction and interestingly enough at the age of 14 no chemical was his addiction he mm-hmm. actually uh had to enter gamblers anonymous how would that happen when you're 14 well you're gonna hear the story and so it was kind of some of those first patterns for him of addictive behavior we got that and of course don't forget carlosvierafoundation.org you can go there purchase 5150 energy drinks benefit all three programs of the Carlos Vieira Foundation, the race to be drug-free, the race to end the stigma, as well as the race for autism. Again, that's carlosvierafoundation.org. We'll be right back with Luke Wallet. Thank you for uh, joining us. We appreciate it, man. Really appreciate your time and sharing your story. Um, it's, uh, you know, our, our mission, our thing, and what we say is if we can just help one person, it's all worth it. So we definitely are thankful for your time and transparency sharing your story. So... You know, when you get called out of the darkness, that's kind of, uh, it brings great purpose to your life and to try to help just one person like you guys are saying. And, you know, we will never see like the, the full rewards of that. You know, we just trust God that he's going to connect the right people to, to our message. Sure. So yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely a blessing. 
Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. And personally, Luke, I thought you would have looked a lot better in red and gold as opposed to black and gold. I'm from Youngstown, Ohio, and uh, the owner, Denise DeBarlow, is a good family friend. Really? Yeah, so... Uh, we were. I actually grew up a 49ers fan. Oh yeah, life. hell yeah, but yeah. We were good enough to get me a spot. On the roster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, man. Uh, well, we're sitting here. We're talking with uh, Luke Wallet. Really great to uh, um, have you come on here and talk about uh, you know coming from a background of addiction like you do. And uh, what I would like to know, Luke, is is maybe point out we've talked with people such as myself. I, I'm I'm uh, recovery with alcohol. But I come from a background of addiction, and so I, I'm wondering, what was childhood like for you that, uh, you know, is, is it a surprise you fell towards addiction? Is it something that ran in family history? So we have, on my father's side, we have, um, we definitely have the bug. Genetics is there. You know, I have a lot of guys that are great examples of recovery, and I still have, um, you know, some some cousins and some uncles that struggle with it to varying degrees. Uh, so it was something that I guess genetically might've been there, but as far as in my own household, I was, I had great examples. My father was actually like 25 years in recovery mm, and yeah. I never saw him outside of it. And then, um, my mom, she's a hundred percent Italian Catholic. So <laughs> every time alcohol was involved, she would, you know, I was afraid to drink around her. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> the Italian mom, you know, that's that you don't get away with that darn thing ever. <laughs> right. Uh, it wasn't really an option, but, um, what, uh, my household was a great example. My, yeah. my sister, she didn't have any issues. Um, my brother, he doesn't have any issues and just kind of uh, fell into my lap. Right. right. Well, and, and sometimes I think because I, I, I have an older brother and I wonder with him, you know, he managed alcohol, no big deal. He could take her or leave it. And there was a point in my life where I could as well. And then certain things happened. And much like we learn more about the brain, you know, certain traumas, I think, from childhood started to finally formulate up there in the overall development of, of who and what I was. And so it for me, it's kind of, it's been unfortunate, but not necessarily surprised. So for you, it sounds like maybe a little bit more of surprise. So what was it, what was it that you were started finding yourself confronted with? Was it, it, it just in high school, like where the, um, you know, it's, it, it, I don't want to say norm to party in high school. I mm -hmm. never did, but some people did. Did it start there? Did it start in college with the injuries on the field? Um, you know, cause you went to Kent state just to let people know that you were a, a premier athlete on the football team there. So, yeah, you know, I think the first for me where, where it showed itself, like I said, my mom being a hundred percent Italian Catholic, I came home drunk one time. I drank one time in high school. And she beat me with this, you know. And that was the last time. <laughs> for the whole summer. <laughs> yeah. Love her to death, but that was the end of drinking for me. Sure. It, it wasn't worth it. These these tendencies and these symptoms showed themselves in sports. How, you know, I always tell people my first drug was sports because it allowed me, when I was at practice or a game, all my problems disappeared. Mm -hmm. You know, it was mm -hmm. a blanket. I could be somebody else. I all my insecurities were gone because I was naturally, you know, I had God given gifts to be a great athlete. Right. But also my story is gambling. So I'm also in recovery from gambling. Oh, wow. So it showed itself in a different way where, 
you know, when I was growing up, the poker boom happened. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Chris mm-hmm. Ferguson, all we all, woke, yeah. you know, so not being able to drink and like having sports, I started gambling pretty young. And my dad actually recognized some things. I got put into a GA meeting at age 14. Wow. So, I mean, obviously a 14 year old doesn't care about anything about those guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <right>. absolutely. <laughs> no. I'm not gambling. when I go to my, my, check my phone and, you know, put a bet in, you know, it was. Yeah. Well, that's was, the, the crazy thing that you could even put a bet in. Yeah, exactly. Right. That was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, that was like when online poker was still legal and like right. everyone was playing it. Sure. They, they cracked down eventually, but it yeah. was like the new thing and everyone was doing it. And we had our little gambling friend group, you know, whoever you hang around, you become. And so I was connected to all six gamblers at our high school. Yeah. Yep, I can relate. That sounds like my early twenties. Uh, you know, a lot of the poker, and and that's probably kind of for me when drinking really took off. So I went from being pretty decent and winning some rounds to like, I'm going all in. Uh, you have a two seven offsuit. Ah, it doesn't matter. I got this. You know. Yeah. Well, I tell like gambling stories to like Youngstown people where I'm from. They'll be like, okay, what's the problem? <laughs> it's like normal life there. I'm horrible at gambling. I can't. I can't afford to be a good gambler or to have a gambling addiction because I'm just absolutely horrible at it. So that's just out of the question Uh, for me. Yeah. So so the gambling kind of started probably out of competitive nature. So when was you said 14? But when when was it where you really kind of had to confront it? I mean, did you go down like a dark road with that first of, you know, any sort of debt, uh, stealing, anything of that nature? Yeah, you nailed it. I think part of it was my dad could recognize these things being in recovery. Yeah. And the second was I started stealing money from my mother mm. and my father. Um, started, you know, lying about things and, you know, um, you know, they made me get a job to repay them the money and, and different things like that. But that that is kind of where they first realized it. And it was extremely manageable. You know, being 14, you can only do so much damage. <laughs> sure. Right, right, right. Enough to like, you know, show show some concerning signs and gambling would just gambling. It was just as brutal as a drug addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's worse because you don't even realize physically what it's doing. And sure, you can find it a lot longer. And um, it was it was uh it has its own little demon qualities to it. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, I I, I've been on uh you know over the years guy trips and and being there with uh people i grew up with and you know i was kind of always uh, all right for our trip if i took 500 bucks and i lose it in the first five minutes oh well that's all i got for the weekend whereas i you know friends it would go back to the atm over and oh over. yeah and uh i wouldn't I, even I, take my wallet <laughs> yeah I, re- I remember a buddy that, that you know his wife is calling him yeah and, you know hey what's what's going on why am i seeing constant dings coming out of the uh. bank here she is she's worried we're like at the strip club or something and we couldn't have been further away from <laughs> Like he's we're at the craps table, baby. Like he's in the, the 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 red room or whatever you would call it, throwing hundred dollar bills left and right. And no, oh, he was he was blowing it at I think it was roulette or craps. Or well, and it's like really that, easy you know? too because you lose the five hundred super quick. There's an ATM just looking at you. You know what I mean? So that's what I noticed. I go to Reno all the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I would take what I was going to spend and then I would leave my wallet in the safe in the room and then that was it. And it was hard because you know I. My well, my wallet is in the room. I could go back, but you know, I'm gonna talk myself out of it. So, <laughs> uh, I actually have buddies that moved out to California that mm-hmm. 
you know, they, they're probably not compulsive gamblers, but they moved out there so they could be closer to Vegas. Oh, no way. <laughs> you guys are, I don't know where you guys are at in California, but I think he's like outside of Los Angeles, which isn't like probably a three or four hour drive to Vegas, maybe. Yeah. 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 yeah about four hours. Yeah. We're in this uh, central California. So we're, okay. we're about uh, south of Modesto, in between Modesto and Fresno. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So it's we not just, too far either. We just, we just opened out in Palm Springs, California. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. Which, uh, um, so let's, uh, be, I want to talk about the, the treatment center and all the great work you're doing, but let's uh, reshift now, Luke, to talking about uh, in college, you're, you're totally kicking ass on the football field at Kent State, uh, looking like a real prospect for the draft. So when do things kind of kick in with any sort of drug use? Yeah, so my sophomore year was kind of like the big um, – it was my big break. I jumped into a starting role, mm-hmm. and things were good. I led the conference in interceptions. Nice. And, and um, during that, that uh, season, I broke my left ankle, a minor break, something that I played on. You know, they back then – it's crazy to say back then, but it was like way more normal to give you tort all shots and like yeah. pain relief shots and, you know – slide you a couple pills and it wasn't a big deal mm-hmm. so um they did that and i was able to get through the season all conference player and um you know honestly i got my first i had surgery after the season and i had i got my first prescription for pain medication <clears throat> and i took it as prescribed yeah. you know and I, and um it wasn't something that that really excited me i I knew it it did its job right pain medication kills pain and i would later on get exposed i didn't have the emotional trauma at that point Mm -hmm. so like i still had two years in front of me still i still had a lot to lose i guess it felt like um so i move into my junior season and our team explodes you know the the mac is like a mid-major college so it's like comparable to like UNLV right. and these, you know, it was like mid-major schools out West. And so our team goes 11 and one, we're 17th in the country. We're uh, a game away from playing in the orange bowl. And um, it was like super exciting. And I led the conference again in interceptions for the second year in a row. I was top 10 in tackles. And it was the first time I had agents calling me. I actually signed with an agent out of California, Derek Fox, who represents Steve Smith and some other good good players yeah. and um, news media outlets calling me. And then I'm projected a mid-round draft pick, which is like, it's the dream come true. It's everything I ever worked for. You know, when you're in second grade and they ask you want, what you want to be, it was like, I want to be a professional football player. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, backup plan, Luke. Like, I don't, I didn't want to talk about that because it really, I knew what I wanted to do. Yeah. And it, um, something that I saw saw about to happen. So my senior year rolls around. It's like the big, the final audition. Um, I essentially just have to complete the season and perform at, at a decent pace. And um, it's all there for me. And so the third game of the year, we play LSU. Uh, LSU in 2013 had um, Jeremy Hill, Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry, and so all 32 teams are in attendance. You know, my eyes are wide open. I'm like, let's go. You know, yeah. this, is, <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is what you dream for. And this is why you play the game. You know, we're in Death Valley. And 
YouTube videos doesn't do it justice. And, you know, with night game and just, oh, surreal. It gives me chills even talking about it. Yeah, and, I bet. Yeah, and so the third the third play of the game, I go to tackle some uh, J.C. Copeland, and I, I shoot out to the flat, and I, I make the tackle, but my left knee gets planted and stuck in the ground, and I tore my left MCL. <sighs> and so at this point, I'm kind of in this weird position. So – Back then, they didn't have redshirt rules like they had now. So, like, if you play one snap in any season, you lose a year of eligibility. Like, right. that year is gone. So, I'm sitting here with the decision of, do I play through the rest of this season and, you know, see this dream become a reality, or do I sit out because of the injury? And I pretty much forfeit the dream because being a mid-major guy, you don't really have that luxury of not playing your senior year than – going to the NFL. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. And so it really wasn't much of a decision then. I knew one thing from my sophomore season that pain medication kills pain. Mm-hmm. And I unable to get a prescription because um, but you had to have surgery to get pain medicine. I score a couple Percocets off the street and we played Penn State the following week, and I had 15 tackles against Penn State, and I thought I had a solution to all my problems. Yeah. yeah. Um, the pain was gone, but what else it does, and this is what I didn't realize my sophomore year, and this is what I didn't realize about being an addict and, and the spiral is that it kills emotional pain. Mm-hmm. Yep. And for the first time in my life, I was experiencing – you know, depression about the timing of the injury, anxiety about my NFL future, stress that I never, I had a very good life, you know, stress that I never really had to experience as a child. And, um, and the scariest thing is like, I didn't even, I couldn't identify these things. I was very, I was very ignorant. And so, um, the spiral for me, it's like these, I think like the enemy takes a little, just like a little window like that and just starts like weaving its way through your life. So like it was first, it was the game. And then it was, I took it Monday to get through practice the following week. Then it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, then to wake up, to go to sleep, to use the bathroom, to whatever the case, I was using it nonstop to the point where I'm physically dependent upon these things now. And it's a scary place to be. Sure. Yeah. It, yeah. it becomes yeah. it becomes a total way of life. It becomes the norm. It becomes a new pattern. Do, now I know you talk about it totally numbing a lot of the, you know, your senses and the way that you can even evaluate situations. Did you find that it was also at the same time robbing you of joy? Um, because, like I said, for me, alcohol it just kind of took away everything. So it wasn't just you know um, the mental and my emotional anguish I was in, but I started to develop a lot of physical issues too um, that I had had from sports injuries and stuff over the years. But then I also wasn't finding any joy either. It was just like everything became numb, even when I wasn't drinking, which I was normally a drink myself to sleep guy, not a wake up or all day kind of a person. Right. No, I agree with you. You know, I always say like my tipping point became when, you know, when the pain of living finally surpassed the joy I got from using. Mm. That was where the point I didn't care if I lived or, or, or died anymore. And that's exactly what happens, you know. It's, and it's a slow, 
slow snowball effect yeah. in a spiral that's like hard to describe to anybody but um yeah that's exactly what happened to me yeah yeah i think unless it's unless you've kind of been there it is really hard to understand or seeing someone go through it but not actually been in that where you can't even you can't even relate to that your brain worked a certain way at a certain time. You're like, that wasn't me. Come on. That was some that was some guy in a mask looking like me, baby. It wasn't me. You know? So but, Absolutely. Uh, you know, and like that no that's another great point. It's like the unintended victims of this too is like our loved ones. Of course. And I spent the majority of my day working with the loved ones mm. of addicts. Because like I'm working with them and then I'm trying to get their family to understand like why they're manipulating and hurting you and saying these things like sure it is a sick person you know and like it's you have to separate like the disease of addiction from the actual person because like the loved one will see glimpses of the person and i'm like listen you're talking to the disease of addiction mm-hmm. yeah. you know? so trying to separate them, separate them can be a pretty hard thing but um yeah it is really crazy right it's like you don't even recognize yourself anymore and yeah, it's uh, it's hard for our loved ones to separate it because it's hard for us to separate it. it you know, right. it becomes such a part of your identity. You know, people. I don't know about you, but I know when I when I was just I even put it out there on social media. Hey, I don't don't get a hold of me. I'm not the guy going drinking with you. I'm not doing any of this. I am not that person. It you know. But we can get together and have coffee, and it's just people just distance themselves right away because they couldn't accept that my identity change, you know? And it was like, you know, this was the nutcase that I'm out there like, you know, I don't know, like Michael Caine altering, you know, give us another beer, won't you? And uh, whatever it is, or being the total idiot and uh, people just disappeared. It was, it was an odd thing in that time of getting my bearings. I'm sure it was for you. Of course. Yeah, no, it really is. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's isolating. Yeah. You know? And, um, you know, I'm seeing like, just I'm sure you are too, with just us all being isolated because of this situation that's going on with the coronavirus, you know, like the rise in relapses and the rise and people just feeling so lost and like not, it almost takes us all back to like early recovery or, you know, it's, it's really something that is hard to describe, but like my phone has been ringing nonstop Mm -hmm. this last like two weeks. It is it's sad it's 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 crazy and it um it's kind of what you're talking about right now yeah but i think it's great though that you've uh you got that phone on and you're kind of a conduit or not kind of but have been a conduit for people to to reach out to because you know we've watched uh, several interviews of you and listening you just like this is my number i'm here to help yeah. you know and so i think it's great that you have done stuff you know i want to get into talking about your purposeful life that you found now, but let's take folks uh, through really quick. So college has come to an end, getting uh, you know some of the pain p- uh, medication off of the streets. So when does it kind of take off and when did, when did it take you towards heroin use? Yeah, so, you know, like this is what people don't understand. It's like these high dosage pills are almost the same effect as heroin. Right, you know, right. Not really, it's, it's, you know, it's just legal heroin. Mm-hmm. And so, just like the progression with these pills where they were intertwining, you know, more and more throughout my life, the milligrams obviously go up because you have to find that level of joy, you know, in recovery or, you know, in addiction is chasing that high. 
that, that first one that you're never going to get back. But we're always like having to up the dose or up the amount or up the frequency. And so I got to the point where I'm just totally dependent upon these things. It's the end of the season. And what, it, what these pills do, it's like, you just feel like you can't be yourself without them. Mm-hmm. You have to use them to a certain point just to feel like, like a level playing ground. Mm-hmm. And so my senior night, sad enough, um, what night that I was supposed to honor and, and, um, you know, show praise to my parents for all the sacrifices they made for me. I was unable to get Percocets off the street. And that's when the drug dealer, you know, said, I don't have any Percocets, but I have this stuff. You can try this, you know, and was a little bit manipulated into it, like look the other way, but give it to me cause I need it. And that was kind of my gateway into heroin. So my first experience on heroin was like the day before my senior night. And then of my senior night, um, a night, like I said, that was supposed to be for my parents. So it was a disaster game as you can imagine. When do you recollect the events that led to your rock bottom and that aha moment that uh, was like, I got to get clean, um, you know, because I want people to know while we're doing this, Luke, it's, uh, we appreciate the transparency and going through it so people can hear it. Maybe they're like, I can relate or I know someone in my family, a loved one that's this, but we want to really point out that you've really turned you know, it into this great adversity into your gift now to, to the world. So where is the point of rock bottom? And when did you start kind of coming out of the darkness into the light? Yeah, yeah. I mean, praise God, it's a pain to purpose deal. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, unfortunately to find the purpose, you have to go through the pain. And it is nothing of my own doing. But, you know, I, I ended up, because of all my uh, – you know, awards in college and because of my just success there, that's, I did all the pro day training and I, you know, horrible numbers, but I still was picked up by the New Orleans Saints. And so um, it was an exciting time and it was short lived because, you know, it's tough to be a heroin addict and be anything, sure. let alone an NFL football player. And so to me, that was over. I go back to Cincinnati, Ohio which is like 400 miles away from where I grew up. I couldn't face anybody there. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was supposed to make it and I didn't. And so I go there, I, I pick up a job, I get fired. I blame everyone else but myself, move back home, start working for my dad. He fires me. It's tough to do to have a father fire you. <laughs> yeah. though, you know, it's gone bad, you know, really fast. And so I blame them don't want anything to do with them. They don't want anything to do with me. I moved back to Cincinnati, Ohio, because now I have the answers to why it didn't work the first time. And it just got exhausting. You know, I, I, I emptied out my bank accounts. I was I just got fired from a job because I'm an academic advisor and I can't wake up for work. You know, I'm showing up to work at 10 o'clock every day after getting warnings after warnings. And... Um, it just got to the point, like I said, where the, the pain of living surpassed the, the joy of using or whatever it covered up. And I, I fully intended to kill myself, you know, and, yeah. and the thing that's so scary, it's like, I, I always had this identity. I don't know if it was because of sports or because of culture or whatever it is, but I had this ego masculine mentality, warrior mentality that I got myself into this problem and only I can get myself out. It's not anybody else's problem, but mine. And so I had a very big problem asking for help 
Mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it. It's like I, if I was going to go say the words, my mouth would stop because I just wouldn't, I couldn't do it. Right. And so that wasn't even like an option, which is what's crazy about it. And so I call this like my miracle moment. It's when my father, who I hadn't really talked to in a few months, drove to Cincinnati because he said he felt something was wrong. And he just, he just wanted to, you know, see if he could help. And then he showed up and he said he loved me. Kind of like the prodigal son in the Bible, you know, like he loved me. He didn't care what I've done. He just wants yeah. his son to come home. And yeah. um, he offered me help and I, and I took help. And I went to a residential program in, in Virginia. So, and like that pl- program was great. I love it. Um, and kind of like the, the, the moment that happened for me was this, um, I was leaving that program and I had plans to come to Florida which was exciting, a uh, chance to rebuild there, actually where I'm here right now. And uh, this therapist runs up to me and she says, Luke, Luke, I need you to read the story of Esther in the Bible. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, Esther 414, perhaps you're created for such a time as this. And I was like, thank you. Like, I'm going to go read the story of Esther. I, you know, I appreciate it. I just wanted to get out of rehab and start my life again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, I wasn't very... I, I grew up in the Catholic church, but as soon as I got to college, I quit going to church. And so I moved to Florida and I got a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a program that saved my life and um, go down here and I get a sponsor. He tells me to go to church. And I said, okay, like I'll, I was at the point where I was like, I'll take suggestions for 90 days. My life can't get any worse. And if it works, it works. And he starts taking me through the steps. And then I go to church for the first time in 10 years. Um, and I go down to an altar call probably because I would do anything at that point for my life to get a little better. Yeah. And this gentleman, he says a beautiful prayer over me and he paused for like 10 seconds. And he said, Mr. Luke, perhaps you were created for such a time as this. And it was like in that moment, I just knew that God's hand was over me this entire time and that he did have a plan and a purpose for all my pain in life. And that, you know, it wasn't a matter of him not being with me. It was just a matter of me not seeing it. Yeah. And so ever since that moment, I kind of got on this journey through different avenues, whether it was Alcoholics Anonymous, whether it was church, whether it's men's groups, um, to draw closer to God. You know, James 4a tells us, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. And so um, it's it's been amazing, you know, and not by my own doing. I've had great friends that have come along you know, I made a decision to surrender, but um, a lot of grace and a lot of mercy has been shown on my life. Well, that's that's awesome. incredible. Well, and it's great to know that you were able to go and serve a purpose because we really want to let everyone know out there that they they do, they can, and if they're struggling, because I, I know for me, uh, Luke, I was a stubborn SOB about it. Um, the, I couldn't have been more of a pain in the ass. I couldn't have blamed everybody else more. Uh, you know, and I, and I was lucky I never lost, you know, jobs and, and I, you know, oddly enough, I was able to kind of thrive in that area, but everything else fell apart until I, I don't know, Mikey, am I a stubborn asshole? Cause I, I, you know, I don't know. I think it's still there, but there is the point where it's just like, I need help. And, uh, I, th- hopefully everybody understands that if you do, it's okay. Just say you need help. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, and that's the thing. So. I think a lot of us, even before we ever get into like the, the thing of addiction, 
it's like one of those things in life. Like if you don't ever have the experience, it's like tough for you to show compassion towards it. Yeah. And like when I look at people now, I try to ask myself the simple question, like, is there any way that I could end up in that person's situation, whether it's homeless, whether it's addiction? And the answer is usually always absolutely yes. Yeah. Because my mentality before I got help was these people dug their grave, they lay in it. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth about it. And so if we can overcome that kind of stigma that we all carry a little bit, that like, it's okay to have a problem, what's not okay is to address it. And like, that's what we're trying to do is break down that barrier and that stigma. Right. So that yeah. you realize there is a better life for you, you might be functioning, but is it really the quality of life that you want, you know? Yeah. And so, just like you're saying, you were able to hold jobs, but like, what kind of life was it really? Was it one that was worth living or was you becoming depressed and anxious because of the life you were living? <laughs> yeah. it was, option B, uh, option B, 100%. Uh, Luke, now if people want to uh, get in touch with you, find out more about what you're doing, um, the the program that you work with, I mean, and as I've read and looked more into it, my goodness, you folks are changing so many different lives. So if you could give people some, some information because you make yourself ready readily available yeah yeah I'm, I'm readily available my phone like i said it hasn't stopped ringing but i love it you know it's a blessing to be able to help you know these days and um the best way to reach me is 888-493-4429 that will go to banyan and i'll get notified um so about banyan we have 11 facilities across the country and we work with almost any insurance i also want you to understand too if you're watching this that regardless of your financial income or insurance, there has never been a case where we haven't been able to get somebody help, whether it's with Banyan or with another program. Mm-hmm. You know, I take Absolutely. great pride in that. Absolutely. You know, three of the people that we've helped in the last couple of days are in long-term programs to rebuild their lives and they're reputable. And that's part of what we do is we connect the dots for people. It takes an army. It takes all three of us just to have this pocket. It takes an <laughs> yeah. to help yeah. Just know that like you're not disqualified from from getting a better life, and that you're going to be treated equal. And that's for if you're struggling watching this. If you're a family member, know that. Know that if you're a family member too, that you know we will help with interventions. We will coach you through stuff. This is an overwhelming process, and so you call on people that have been through it to help expedite it and help simplify it. And you know we start this journey together. So again, that number is eight 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 four nine three. Four four two nine. Awesome. Well, Luke, we thank you for your story. We thank you for letting people know and uh, for knocking doors down and and just uh, helping inspire and save some lives. Yeah, thanks for your time, brother. We appreciate it, man. Of course, yeah. Anything I could do to help you guys, please reach out. All right, Luke. Take Absolutely. care. Good, sir. The Knocking Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. 
There he is, Mikey, Mr. Luke Wale. Good people, man. Yes. I like that guy. I do too. Hopefully, we'll be able to meet up with them. And of course, wrong team, though. I know. <laughs> he wasn't drafted by the Niners. He was drafted by the Saints. But uh, <laughs> hey, it would have been cool to see him in the league. But uh, you know, that's the cool thing. When I hear a story like that, what I take away from it is he realized and accepts that his addiction was to serve a different purpose altogether. And he seems so excited about what he is doing and just helping people and families and helping families understand to the best of their ability. And mm-hmm. it's uh, amazing to have these stories where these folks come on, and, and I, it's been a reoccurring thing—a uh, purpose from their pain. Yeah, you know, all the way back to when Scott Stapp was on, which was a great episode. And of course, the song "Purpose for Pain." And you know what really is heartbreaking too is what he tore is what it, MCL is that yeah. what it was? The game against Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry, all thirty-two teams are there, agents hitting him up, and then that happens. Like, yeah. damn, bro. But you know. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And it certainly did for him. It led him down that path. And Mm -hmm. if you uh, look at the social media postings we have on our Facebook and Instagram, Luke is tagged in those. Mm -hmm. You can go to his Instagram and see there's pictures of him when this guy that was – you know, built football ready, yeah. and he is down. It looks like 125 pounds. I mean, Easily. he is nothing, and the, he's rebuilt himself mentally, emotionally, physically, improved, and gotten so much stronger. So, hopefully, we'll be able to speak with Luke again. And uh, upcoming, we got some other great people that we're going to be speaking with. Uh, Megan Leach, who mm-hmm. uh, happens to work closely with Luke, her uh, opioid addiction totally starting in a total different way, and at an earlier age when addictive behaviors started to come into place. So. Yeah. We're going to be talking with her, so make sure that you've subscribed now to the Knocking Doors Down podcast. If you have yet, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, or go to kddmediacompany.com and click the podcast link. Anything else, sir, Mikey? That'll do it, Jason. All right, guys, have a great week and keep knocking doors down. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the Knocking Doors Down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company. Knocking doors down. Real people, real stories, real life. 
real discussions of life struggles including addiction, relationships, finances, and more, but even more importantly, living with them, overcoming them, and conquering them. Celebrities, experts, and everyday people talk about how they were able to break through whatever life handed them by knocking doors down. New podcast episodes are available every Thursday. Subscribe now on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio app, or at kddmediacompany.com.